0: Welcome to Ellison's Connects, the official podcast by Ellison's Solicitors, where we bring together expert professionals from a wide range of areas to discuss key developments and trends. Hello and welcome to the latest episode of Ellison's Connects. In this episode, we will be discussing capacity assessments for clients making wills and LPAs. And in particular, when are they necessary and how do they work? I'm Nick Bowen, Associate Solicitor within the Wills Trusts and Probate team, and I'm joined by my colleague, partner and head of Wills Trusts and Probate, Nicola Weldon, and guest speaker, Dr Suzanne Stacey, Consultant in Later Life Psychiatry.
1: Thanks, Nick. So I suppose the first thing to think about is when might capacity be an issue in the work that you do?
0: Generally, it's the case that uh, where you've got elderly or vulnerable clients, which we do have quite a lot, you have to be quite careful that they do sort of fully understand what it is you're discussing and what the, the documents do. Because obviously with LPAs, for example, they are powerful documents, which potentially you know, give a lot of power over to attorneys. So where people are sort of in that stage of life, sometimes they can get confused. Sometimes with elderly clients, you, you get where people are sort of physically fairly well, they, they can sort of suffer kind of mental frailty in, into older age, which sort of makes you think that uh, you, you do need to be extra careful with capacity with that sort of type of client. So it's signs of confusion uh, or indeed a formal diagnosis that, sits that you're told about in your initial meeting would also want you to move you towards assessing capacity.
1: So I suppose just for the benefit of people who might be listening, you mentioned about an LPA, um, but what is that?
0: Lasting power of attorney. So there are two types. There's um, a property and financial affairs, lasting power of attorney. So that's a document where uh, somebody known as a donor, so the client in in our case, is giving uh, power to attorneys. So that's often family members, sometimes friends, to manage financial decisions for them. Um, up to and including the sale of their property or any major other financial decisions in their lives down to sort of relatively everyday things such as paying utility bills and everything in between. So that's um, type one. Type two is LPA for health and welfare. Uh, that uh, has much the same uh, principles at heart, but um, it, it gives attorneys power to have the decision-making capability over uh, that person's health and welfare. But that one would only come into being uh, if the person was unable to make their own decisions full stop, whereas the property and financial affairs one can be used when the person still has capacity, but for whatever reason, they just want to cede control over certain decisions to their attorneys.
1: So they're really important documents, aren't they? So we need to yeah. be really sure that when somebody's making these documents that they understand fully what it is, the authority they're giving yeah, to their absolutely. attorneys.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah,
1: So we've spent, spoken about lasting powers of attorney. Um, you also touched on people's understanding when they're making a, a will as well. I mean, so what's the, the downside? So if somebody makes a will and it turns out they haven't got capacity, well, you know, what's the problem with that?
0: Well, I suppose you then have to sort of think, have they made a will prior to to sort of coming in to instruct you to do this one. So if they've made a previous will, obviously, without being able to update it, that one would apply. And then you have to think, well, is that one now not fit for purpose? Because if it is, then you might need to go down the statutory will sort of route. Or I suppose, I mean, I've, it's not something I've been involved in, but I'd imagine if they wanted to sort of and had capacity to destroy their previous will, or if indeed there was no previous will at all, then then the intestacy rules would apply so so yeah that's
1: yeah what's at stake so so that the point is isn't it that if somebody hasn't got capacity they can't make a will and if they they did go ahead and make a will then it could be challenged at some point down the road so it's yeah so important isn't
0: it another way of looking at it if they went ahead to make one yeah then it could be challenged yeah absolutely so there's there's kind of there's it's fraught with with difficulty, um, whichever way you go.
1: Yeah. Um, so, what are the different tests of capacity? I mean, there are there different tests, or is it the same? Yeah.
0: That, so, there are two separate tests of capacity. So, firstly, wills. Um, there, there's still a sort of case law test for capacity, uh, which is uh, the case of Banks and Goodfellow, which uh, which is now very old. Uh, 1870. That case uh, um, was was heard. Uh, and uh, and that's got sort of four headings to it. The person needs to understand the nature of making a will and its effects. Understand the extent of the property they are disposing of. Uh, be able to comprehend and appreciate the claims to which they ought to give effect. So that means who the beneficiaries are, and also uh, you know who might have a sort of moral claim over over their their money effectively, uh, and um, and have no disorder of the mind that uh, that perverts their sense of right quite old word. Oh, I
1: can say you can tell it's an old and, case, can't yeah, <laughs> you?
0: Yeah, can, you can. So so that's the test for that one. And then when the Mental Capacity ca- uh, Act came in in 2005, uh, there was there was initially contention that that would then take the place of Banks and Goodfellow. But there, there have been cases since 2005 which show that the courts don't actually agree with that and that they, they've still defaulted back to Banks and Goodfellow. So... The Mental Capacity Act test differs in that it assumes a person has the capacity to make a decision themselves unless proved otherwise. So it kind of switches the burden of proof to prove that they can't rather than prove that they can, I suppose. So there's a two-stage test. The first question you have to ask is, does the person have an impairment of their mind or brain as a result of illness or external factors? And then number two, does that impairment mean, mean that they're unable to make a specific decision when they need to? Um, and crucially, they need to understand the inf- information relevant to the decision. So some commentators think that that actually means that the Mental Capacity Act test for capacity is quite stringent because, uh, because they, they have to understand all the information kind of surrounding the decision they're making, which is potentially quite, quite a high level of understanding. Yeah.
1: So is that the same test for lasting powers of attorney or are you looking at something different from
0: that? Oh, sorry, no, that that's uh, that's the that's the test for, for making lasting powers of attorney under the MCA. Yeah, yeah, no, yeah, oh, yeah. brilliant.
1: So, um, I mean, that sounds quite complicated. Obviously, we're sort of trained lawyers and now we're talking about um, capacity issues which seem more like um, something like a, a doctor would be more involved yeah. in than us. So if you have concerns about one of your clients perhaps comes to seeing you're worried about their capacity or level of understanding, what do you do?
0: Well, the first thing we do is is ask them about their, their GP. A lot of GP surgeries will consent to carry out these tests. I, I realise that in today's world, a lot of GPs are extremely busy, but unfortunately that's, that's often our first port of call. Sometimes they'll charge a small fee, sometimes they won't. But better than that, I would say, would be a specialist report from someone so- such as Dr Stacey, and I'd also add that at the point at which you have to start talking about medical experts, you probably want to manage the clients and their family's expectations because the timescale is going to increase, the costs are obviously going to increase, and the general sort of complexity of it is only going to get sort of higher.
1: Yeah. But I suppose it's so important though, isn't it? Because if it's not done and things aren't done properly, we've said that a will can be challenged, might be found yeah. invalid, like, equally with a lasting power of attorney, and it can make all sorts of problems. So, although it does make things a little bit longer, more costly, it's so important
0: Absolutely. To, to get yep. it
1: done. Absolutely. So, Dr. Stacey, is it okay with call you Suzanne? <clears throat> yes, <Yeah>. of course. <laughs> yes. Um, so, if, you know, if... if um, we had a client, and um, like Nick said, we thought we had a concern about capacity, so we can going to think, well, well, let's go and see Dr. Stacey. What would you information would you need just to get started in the first place?
2: Yeah, so before I saw a, a patient, I'd ask for some information from their GP, not great details, but their medical problems, any active problems at the moment, what medication that they're on, um, any established diagnoses. And then I also like to get some information either from a family member or from solicitors about the decision in question. So, for example, if somebody's making a decision about their will and they wrongly believe they don't have any assets or anything, that the decision as to who they would be leaving that to or their their lack of money would be quite different than if they realised that they had, for example, a property or savings. So I like to have some vague background information. I don't need to know details and figures, but just some rough information so that when I assess the client, I know what um, sort of the decision is and what the parameters are involved.
1: Yeah, because I suppose otherwise, if you don't have that information, you don't know, um, you can't marry against those tests that Nick spoke about, can you? Absolutely, yeah. Would you see someone remotely or would you see somebody in their home or do they come to you? How does it work?
2: So I prefer to see people face to face because I just feel that I get to know people better and they're often more comfortable face to face. For a part of the assessment, I I need to see the person alone or at least out of earshot of anybody else. And if I'm doing it via Zoom... That's it's not always easy to um facilitate. So I often go and see people in their own home because that's where they're most comfortable and I want to make them relaxed and as comfortable as possible. But I do also have a clinic um in a field so I could see them there if they preferred a more neutral environment. So and I think other doctors might vary as to what they preferred as well. Yeah. So
1: so you mentioned about seeing somebody on their own. So if you've got somebody who is a little bit nervous, can a family member be with them? How does
2: how yeah. does that work? Yeah, for sure. Now, I really want to make the assessment as unstressful as I can for somebody. And... um obviously they are complicated issues and often people like to have the support of a family member so I'm really happy for a family member or a friend to be present for almost all of it and um, and then for the bit that I like to see people on their own for I could just have the the person move to the other end of the room or you know put some headphones on or something so I I, you know I I wouldn't want to upset anybody definitely not so I tried to make it as easy for somebody as possible um and usually having a family member there is helpful
1: yeah I suppose that's an important thing to point on nick as well it's quite a delicate thing isn't it having to deal with because if somebody comes to us and they're not aware or have any idea that perhaps capacity might be an issue either for themselves or their partner maybe yeah it's difficult isn't
0: it the way i've couched it as well before and i'm sure that you you have done the same or similar is just kind of not try to not accentuate the fact that Suddenly, you have doubts as to their understanding. Mm. I, I might, I, I sort of try and be gentler than that because it's a horrible situation and just try and sort of say to them, It's really important that we just kind of um, make sure that we've got everything in, in place to, to, to make sure that somebody else backs you up in in what you want to do kind of thing and almost kind of spin it to make it a positive thing which in a in a way it is a positive thing as you said before it's it's positive that's being done properly and and won't hopefully be subject to challenge so yeah you've got to kind of spin it a bit I suppose
1: yeah and no, I think you're right because it is positive isn't it because it's it's doing taking positive steps to ensure that those person's wishes yeah. are carried out isn't it yeah going forward so Suzanne so if a client is referred to you what
2: would the yeah. actual assessment involve yeah so I normally take about an hour and there's sort of two parts to the assessment. So the first part, which I'm happy for family or, or friends to be present, would be um a general assessment of the person and um, a little bit of information about their background and medical history, medications, that sort of thing. And then particularly looking into any mental impairment that I find and the nature of that, um, and how long it's been going on for and, you know, w- how it affects the individual. So, um, I try and ask gentle and, and kind of easy questions and, um, you know, just to try and establish what's, what's going on and how an individual is managing from day to day really and, and how, you know, much of an impairment there is there, if there is one. Um, If I find that there's cognitive impairment, I um, sometimes do a little memory assessment, which takes just a couple of minutes, but obviously I wouldn't do that. It's not essential. I wouldn't do it if somebody's getting distressed or upset, you know. Um, my, My main aim is to make somebody feel comfortable, so I go and see them as I said, in their own home. And I often go a time of day that's good for them, you know, if it's better in the mornings or better after they've had their afternoon nap or whatever, um, you know, because I really want to get the best from a person and to help them as much as possible to to sort of facilitate the capacity um, as much as possible. And as you said, we go into it presuming that somebody does have the capacity um, rather than the other way around. So I'm trying to support them with that as much as I can. Okay. So that's the first part of the assessment. And then the second part is a, is a more specific discussion about the the issue in question and that's the part that I like to see somebody in there on their own Um it, obviously it's very rare but there could be an instance where a relative or a friend were coercing somebody into saying something that they actually didn't want to and didn't reflect their wishes and just I need to satisfy myself that that's not the case so that's why I give um, individuals opportunity to speak to me on their own and then I just explore with the individual the um, nature of the um, decision to be made I I wouldn't expect for somebody to remember in in great detail or in any detail the 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 issue in question because you know lasting power of attorney or wills aren't something that we generally deal with on a day-to-day basis but together between us if we can go through it and I can just gain um, confidence that the person has been able to understand the issue in question um, you know what would happen if they do this what happens if they don't What powers are they giving to their, you know, in the case of lasting power of attorney, what powers are they giving their appointed attorney? So, you know, just so that I can understand that they've got the details of that down and can hold it in their brain long enough to weigh it up and make a decision which they can communicate to me so that's all I'm looking for really that they can hold the information I don't need them to give me a lecture when I arrive I just need them to hold it in their minds long enough to be able to weigh it up so if they can talk me through the decision making process as to why they're choosing to do what they're choosing and you know what their thoughts are about that and that's really helpful so that normally takes about 20 minutes or so as well if things are very complicated I sometimes have to go back a second time it's only happened to me once um, so far or equally if somebody when I get to see them initially they are um unable to engage with the assessment because they've forgotten their hearing aids or um you know they're 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 more muddled up because they've got an infection or some other reason I wouldn't be fair for me to make an assessment at that time I'd have to go back again um but that is very very rare yeah I suppose like you mentioned earlier about particular
1: times as well because people's capacity can vary throughout absolutely, the day can't they yeah. so it's understanding what's the best time for somebody as well yeah, isn't it?
2: Absolutely and it's sometimes helpful if somebody's capacity does fluctuate to have a a chat with somebody who knows them to kind of figure out what's the best way and how it's best to approach them and, you know, what environment is best and all things like that to make sure that I'm giving the individual the absolute best chance I can to, to kind of be able to understand the, the information and make the decision for themselves.
1: Yeah, and I just wonder, have you ever been called upon to act as a witness to a will, just to show, show that somebody's got capacity yes. at that particular time yes, actually making the will? Done. Yes, yeah. I have, yeah. yeah, Because yeah. that's something sometimes we would ask uh, yeah. to be done as well. Yeah, yeah.
2: yeah so I certainly can do that as well. Yeah, yeah. part of the assessment. Yeah. yeah. So, um, so burning question. So, what would be a cost of an assessment like this, <laughs> yeah. So, for the assessment and the report that I then write and send to the solicitors, normally about four to five hundred pounds, um, except for the rare instances where I might need to go back when it would probably be £150 more than that. Um, so, um, yeah, that, that's the guide price. And I think doctors like me probably will charge similarly, but maybe a bit variational.
1: Yeah, I think if it, then people might sort of think, well, that's, you know, a lot of money, but I think we'll hopefully you sort of just stress the importance of it, because if yeah. somebody perhaps um goes ahead and makes a will or a lasting power of attorney without that backup, and if it is challenged further yeah. down the road without that, then, you know, it's quite open that the will could be overturned or the lasting power of attorney could be cancelled or something like that.
2: Yeah. Yeah, so I think um, part of the fees is to, to cover the insurance for me, really, because I'm putting my name ni- on the line saying that, yes, somebody does have the capacity, or, or no, they don't. Mm-hmm. And so, um, you know, that's quite a, a big legal decision, really, isn't yeah. it? And so, um,
1: yeah. Yeah, and the cost of that in comparison, actually, to a will being challenged or a lasting power of attorney anyway. being challenged. Yeah, <laughs> it's small, exactly. aren't they? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I suppose, uh, Nick, then, from a legal perspective... If Suzanne were to determine that the client didn't have capacity to make a will or to make a lasting power of attorney, what options would be available to you to advise a client?
0: Um, so I suppose starting with the the will um, issue, um, uh, the, the the alternative, I suppose there's two alternatives, and and it depends on the sort of the facts and what what is best for the client from. Sort of costs point of view as well as a practical point of view, but Mm. um, you can you can simply leave things as they are. So that means that if, as I alluded to earlier, if somebody's made a valid will earlier in life, that will will take effect. And then if they've never made a will, the intestacy rules apply. So so that might actually be perfectly fine for some people. Um, You know, if they had if they had you know a a spouse or or children, that the the statutory uh, rules might. Uh, might say that 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 it gets, sorry the intestacy rules may may say that it goes in the direction that they might have wanted. I suppose it depends on the instructions they might have tried to give, and sort of like the the lawyer would have to kind of work out whether that's appropriate. The second option is the statutory will. So so what so that's another uh, that that's a court protection matter where you can apply to a court uh, to for for a statutory will to be made. Uh, the the court will take into account. The person's past and present wishes and feelings, uh, the beliefs and values that would have been likely to influence their decision if they could make the decision and other factors that they would be likely to consider if they were able to do so. So it's quite wide ranging and it's going, this is going to be an expensive and time consuming job. But I suppose if if the existing will or, or intestacy position doesn't reflect what they would have wanted, there's been a change of, change of circumstance, a big change in, in the value of their estate. Uh, than then all of those are valid ways to pre- reasons to proceed.
1: Okay. So there are options available yeah. potentially. Yeah.
0: And then turning to the LPA issue, if somebody can't make an LPA, then be looking at a deputy ship order. So they tend to be in respect of financial matters and what the court does there is is the well the the applicant, so our client then becomes uh, it becomes that the, the applicant to the court, who is often a sort of close family member who is going to be trusting, uh, be tr- uh, sort of, you know, working closely with a person who lacks capacity and, and want to always work in their best interests. They then have to apply and give lots and lots of information about themselves and their own financial suitability because the court has to, um, stand in the shoes of the, of the patient who lacks capacity and um, and decide that that person is best to manage their finances for them. So again, that is very long and drawn out and very expensive and and not ideal at all.
1: Yeah. And of course, when we do act as professional deputies sometimes yeah. like where people haven't got family or someone close enough to them that can act as well. Okay. So I suppose we sort of said it's a really, it's quite a sensitive area to deal with. It's a really important area to deal with because we're talking about really important documents. I mean, is there anything else that you would add to that, Suzanne?
2: Just to stress that, from a doctor's point of view, we're just really there to to try and support somebody with uh, maintaining capacity. And uh, if a specialist assessment from a, a medical profession were to be needed, then uh, you know, it, it I know it sounds scary and daunting, but it's really less bad than it sounds. And if that's the way forward and the way to get the lasting power of attorney or the um, the will made, then I, I I would suggest it's the way forward, really. Oh, brilliant! Thank you so much.
0: Thank you for listening to Ellison's Connect and many thanks to Nick and Suzanne for joining me in this episode. Any additional guides and insights we have mentioned today will be available on our website. We hope you found this episode insightful. If you would like to discuss anything further on this subject then please do get in touch via our website ellisonsolicitors.com. Please don't forget to subscribe to our podcast and follow us on our social channels to keep up to date with latest news and insights. Any information shared on this podcast was accurate at the time of recording. However, we advise speaking to your usual Ellison's advisor to make sure there hasn't been any changes since. Thank you to podtalk.co.uk for producing this podcast series.